0: Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Uh, it's good to be with you, not sitting in a, in a car doing uh, this, little, <laughs> this little show of ours. Um, but again, it's because I'm on the road, so I will make whatever I need to do happen from wherever I am. So it's always good to see you guys. Uh, One of these days, uh, hopefully we'll make it in person so that uh, we can actually do a show where we can throw stuff at each other versus (laughs) virtually throwing stuff at each other. Well, I'm glad to see that uh, everybody is chipper and ready to go. We got an interesting accident, sad accident. And of course, uh, it is one of those accidents where you just have to shake your head, not only as an investigator, but anybody in aviation. And you just say to yourself, what the blank? Was this guy thinking? And and it's just, it is a a ridiculous accident from the standpoint of a pilot putting himself and his son in a position of jeopardy. And what we're going to get into is um, the advisory circular published by the FAA, AC 60 22, that talks about aeronautical decision making and describes. Um, various attitudes and decision-making processes of a pilot. This was an accident that occurred at Midland, Texas. It was uh, in May, but it was hot down there. Um, This pilot who had learned to fly, or at least began his flight training several years before, ended up taking a three to five-year hiatus from flying, apparently was doing something else, building a business or whatever, and then contacted a flight instructor to get back into flying. He started flying a 172, and for about five months had taken some flight instruction. And during the course of that five months coming back into flying, he bought a Cirrus SR-22. We don't know if he had been flying it. It's obvious that he was between the period of January of 2018 when he purchased the airplane. And May of 18, when he was killed in that very same airplane, while he was taking flight instruction, he was not a rated pilot. He was a student pilot. His medical certificate, the latest medical certificate at the time of the accident had been issued five years before. He wasn't uh, eligible for basic med or anything like that. So you start to see a pattern. Um, when, uh, when the accident did happen, and this was an accident where the pilot on this particular day was taking off out of Midland with a 6,600-foot 6, density altitude. The elevation at that airport's only around 2,800 feet, so you know it was hot. We all know what density altitude does to aircraft performance, and Cirrus is, is definitely not exempt from performance issues on hot days like that. And so this pilot took off. There was a, uh, there was a uh, airline pilot who watched the takeoff, as well as a couple of other pilots from the commemorative Air Force, which is located at Midland. They have a hangar there. Uh, you had several pilots watch and said, yep, the airplane took off during the climb out at about 200 feet. Uh, the airplane, the airspeed obviously got slow uh, and the, uh, the airplane stalled and went uh, rolled off on the right wing went into a right spiral and ended up hitting the ground in a flat attitude. And you'll see it in the pictures that we're going to post with this accident. But here I now you...
2: I have a question for Todd.
0: Yeah. As a new pilot. You're getting back
2: into the game. What has your instructor been talking to you about uh, your pressure altitude since uh, in Boston, we've experienced some uh, spring of very high abnormally high temperatures.
3: Well, I was a, uh... Uh, flying during the summer in Boston. And that was something the instructor didn't have to remind me of that because I knew that one of the things from flying in hot weather, because I did most of my flying before in Texas in the Mojave Desert, was exactly that, dealing with the fact that performance reduces on a hot day like that. And, you know, my instructor specifically has me fill out a takeoff and landing data card every time we fly. And I go through it chapter and verse, you know, figure out whether I have to use a short field takeoff or not, what kind of landing runway I have? What our emergency procedures are going to be? So there's like my own brief the night before. There's a brief when we get into the cockpit. So I'm not ready for everything, but it's a lot more systematic than when I first learned how to fly
0: years ago. And and you have to look at also, Todd, the fact that you aren't going to use a very steep climb when you've got a hot day. Performance is lacking because you know that that prop isn't producing uh all the thrust it possibly can and of course the wing isn't producing all the lift it possibly can so your climb out's going to be a little shallower and things like that and you're always factoring those things into um, not only how you're going to fly the airplane but then any decision making that goes along with if i lose an engine where am i going to go what am I going to do? I can't yank and bank this airplane because performance is is sorely lacking. And when you look at the accident that we're talking about, here you have a pilot who put himself in a position of jeopardy. Now, the interesting thing is the investigator went out and not only interviewed these witnesses, but interviewed the pilot's wife. And the pilot's wife was, quote, very surprised that he didn't have a pilot's license, given the fact that he had been flying and bought an airplane and been flying passengers um, quite frequently, like she said, um, which leads one to believe that this guy decided, you know what, I don't, I know how to fly, I know enough to fly the airplane, and uh, and he ended up putting him, his son in the airplane, and uh, they ended up getting into a very bad situation that cost both of them, their lives. And we've talked about this before, where you have passengers, whether it's family or friends or acquaintances, colleagues, doesn't matter. You get into that airplane as the pilot in command, they have a tacit level of trust that you're going to do all the things that are necessary to complete that flight safely. And that you are what you say you are as far as being the pilot. And, um, and in this case, you have a family member who, and of course, his wife as well, all thought that he was a rated pilot or a certificated pilot and puts him in, in a position um, of jeopardy. And, and you have to now dissect this pilot's you know, psyche, if you will, his, his, his attitude, um, his character and integrity. And we all we've talked about that multiple times on this show. And that's why I talk about Advisory Circular 60-22, which is not only a good read and basically should be a required read uh, for pilots as they advance in their careers and, and of course, flight instructors, but it's also got a lot of good life lessons in it. And when you start, you know, dissecting this pilot's, um, you know, anti-authority and things like that, and we'll go through all of the elements here in a minute. All of a sudden now, there is a perfect character study in this accident of this pilot. And as sad as it is to say, he met a lot of the elements. Now, I also saw a few shortcomings in the report. I don't know if you guys did, but the investigator, while he did a decent job um, in trying to record some of the information, uh, he did talk to this pilot's flight instructor, And the flight instructor basically said that he had never flown with the accident pilot in the Cirrus aircraft. So that begs the question, where did this pilot learn to fly the Cirrus? It was not a new Cirrus, it was a used Cirrus, um, had very low time it only had 875 hours total time. Where did he buy it from? Who gave him any kind of training in the airplane? And, of course, the pilot's logbooks magically were not found. They didn't exist. And, um, and the question that I have is, well, did you ask the flight instructor if he ever filled out a logbook every mm-hmm. time they flew? Um, there had to be a logbook somewhere if that pilot was taking flight instruction because the flight instructor had to record it. But I would have run to ground who sold this pilot that serious. Did you give him any flight training? Did you suggest he get any flight training? How did he fly the airplane from wherever he bought it to wherever his home airport was? I mean, there was a lot of questions just surrounding that. And then, of course, um, the in- investigator said that uh, on top of that 100 hours that the flight instructor estimated that the accident pilot had, the investigator um, added another 92 hours. For a total time of 192 hours and the question is how did he arrive at that number if there's no logbooks so these are the kinds of questions and and if you're thinking well what does that matter it matters because you're trying to do, identify patterns you're trying to identify how this person bought this more sophisticated airplane than a 172 who taught him to fly was he out there self-taught again Now, all of a sudden, it puts into the pattern the elements of the advisory circular we're going to talk about. And I know, Todd, you've been reading about the hazardous attitudes part of this advisory circular.
3: Well, and in that advisory circular, for those of you who are going to download it for free from the FAA, go straight to Chapter 3. This is where the good stuff is. There are five basic hazardous attitudes. And as Greg stated, it's not just in aviation, but in life in general. The first one is. Anti-authority, the idea that don't tell me what to do, I know better. Well, in this case, there are several examples of that, both uh, in this flight and also longer term in his uh, recent flying career.
0: Yeah, and when you look at it, I mean, all the regulations, we all know student pilots are not allowed to carry passengers. um, And regardless of the fact that this pilot bought his own airplane, he is still bound by uh, the regulations that say that a flight instructor has to endorse him for certain levels of flying, cross-country solos and and all sorts of things. So all of a sudden now, you have a guy who apparently believes he knows enough, he's above the law, if you will, and he doesn't need to abide by any of the federal aviation regulations uh, to operate the airplane. And, and if you go on Catherine's report and you start to see, and you see pictures and read about um, his successes as a business person, you can actually see this particular trait come out as well as the next one, which is? Impulsivity. Before
2: you, move on, before you move on, Todd, I have a question. How does your instructor
3: handle your logbook? After every flight, we sit down. First thing I do is I take out the logbook. He makes notes in a log book, and of course, it has very little space for that. And I, at the same time, take out my notepaper and start making notes about the things in the flight, the things I have to work on, uh, the errors that have to be addressed. So it's a two-way street. It's not just me relying on the instructor to write something down. I need
0: to write more things
3: down for my own education. So now, what is
0: that next? I'm sorry. What's that okay. next hazardous uh,
3: attitude? Certainly, uh, moving to the next one, impulsivity, doing something quickly. And, you know, I'd like to note that, like you said, the report was kind of thin on details on this particular flight. But one thing that was obvious to me, he was trying to do something quickly in a long range sort of way. He wants to fly passengers before he can fly passengers. So it, anti-authority and impulsivity together on that one.
0: John, did you uh, did you see anything in, in the notes that you read and any of the docket information that uh, you know would give you concern and, and emphasize these two points?
2: Certainly, you know, the fact that he's flying his son, he's trying to be a hero to the family. I right? never mind the other passengers that he flew that didn't under, didn't know that he didn't have a license, but just bringing his family, uh, I mean, that complicates the situation even more so. And did it affect him when he started to have a problem with the airplane? Because he knows his son's on the flight now and he can double his anxiety at least. So it uh, it's definitely a problem for, for anybody, especially this guy, but for anybody that's flying family members, because in the back of his mind, he knows that he doesn't have a license. He knows that he's in trouble. The speed fell off. And uh, how... I mean, this whole accident happened over the airport. Yeah. So, I mean, it it almost didn't didn't leave airport property. I mean, that's that's, uh,
0: crazy for an airplane like this. Yeah. And then, Todd, um, in looking at the next hazardous attitude, what do we have? Next hazardous attitude is invulnerability, the idea that it won't happen
3: to me. And uh, although there is nothing explicit in the docket or the uh, report. His overall actions imply that somehow or another he thought that not having a proper license, uh, not filling out apparently his logbook uh, formally, and having no record that we can find of actually getting trained in the aircraft, he must have thought, in my opinion, that nothing bad can happen to him. I can afford to buy this airplane. I have the knowledge to fly it.
0: Let's go. And and that's a a, a nice characterization because. All of those elements in that particular attitude, invulnerability, it can't happen to me. It only happens to the other guy. And apparently that has been reinforced for all the times that he has conducted flights with passengers or probably solo that, hey, I've done it before. I'm safe. I was able to make it from point A to point B without a problem. On this particular day, though, he got himself into a position where he had a problem, not mechanically with the airplane, because uh, the NTSB said there was nothing mechanically wrong with the airplane. So now you have to look at aircraft performance. It's apparent he didn't have a basis of knowledge, as you would typically expect for a certificated private pilot to have, especially regarding density altitude. And you know, you know, it's obvious that there was no way he did any kind of performance or even Thought about performance on that particular day. He had an airplane. He had two people on board. He probably had some, you know, full tanks on board, figuring, ah, eh, it's a light load. Not a big deal on a hot day. It was a big deal on a hot day.
3: And this is doubly uh, maddening because he had a 9,500 foot runway.
0: If yeah. he had done
3: even a little bit of pre planning, it's like, okay, I have a lot of runway to work with. I need to take more time to build up the the energy to get to flying speed. Apparently, that didn't happen, which yep. leads us to the fourth of the five uh, hazardous attitudes. Macho.
0: I can do it. Yep. And, you know, macho is ego. Ego is macho. And, and while we always talk about a pilot checking his or her ego at the door, it's sometimes very hard to do, especially, like you said, and you brought up a good term, he's He's basically a hero to his family, if you will, especially he's got his son in the airplane with him who uh, who really looks up to him. So, you know, that ego starts to come through that macho attitude of I can do this and I'm going to show you how I can do it. So watch me. And uh, unfortunately, um, I can imagine what the actions were by that pilot when things started to go south and um, he wasn't that macho anymore because he really didn't understand what he needed to be doing to recover from that bad situation. So it is sad that uh, you know all of those four attitudes, you know, come together in a variety of different ways to uh, to put the pilot in a position that it, it really is a position of failure, not a position of success.
3: Well, the fifth and final hazardous attitude is probably the only one. He didn't uh, demonstrate that's resignation. The idea of what's the use. Let me throw in the towel. Let me give up on this. Uh, given his activities and success in other parts of his life, I, in my opinion, nothing about this accent says that he was resigned to his fate. I think he felt that he had his fate in his hands, which goes back to what we are saying about
0: invulnerability and machismo. Yeah. And it, and it, again, I mean, all of us as pilots and, and again, uh, these these things also apply to mechanics. They also apply to managers. They also apply to parents. (laughs) Because when I look at this particular advisory circular, and I'm talking about it all the time as life lessons, because there are a lot of life lessons in, in the description of how we make decisions, what kind of attitudes we carry, and then some of the antidotes for these hazardous attitudes. And as a pilot, you have to do a self-examination. You have to recognize that you're falling into this trap. Maybe I am getting into the airplane. Maybe I shouldn't be flying today, but you know what? Been there, done that, or I have enough confidence or overconfidence in myself. And you rationalize why you can or can't do something. And most likely it's more like that, oh, I can make that happen. And if I mean, I heard it all the time, pilots taking off in marginal VFR weather or figuring that they could take off and yeah, if they run into weather, I'll just turn around and come back. Even after flight service said VFR flight not recommended or whatever, those guys don't come back. And when they do come back, they usually come back in a box. And it's because they rationalize that decision. If it looks bad, I'll turn around. If I get into a situation, I'll go somewhere else they never have that opportunity. They never exercise that option. And that's why it's so important. And that's why the FAA stresses it so much. And I'm sure you're, you're getting this again, Todd, as you get right back into flying. And that is doing the self-exam. I am safe and, and doing those pre-flight checks. Am I fit to fly? Because all of this is not just physical, it's also mental. Are you mentally prepared for that particular flight. And John preaches it all the time um, at the end of the show, because that's all part of pre-flight planning and preparation.
2: You know, I've been, for the last 25 years, I've been
0: uh, reading this this AC.
2: I remember when it came out, but it didn't, didn't focus until I got to the board and we started looking at the accidents. And that's a heck of a piece of work that the FAA did putting this together. But what baffles me is why haven't we applied it to the other uh, areas like maintenance, dispatch, and all the rest of it, because this is a document that really crosses all those lines in aviation. Yep. But we don't we don't implement it. It's we don't have that kind of information available to mechanics. We throw some of it in uh, under the label of maintenance human factors, which is about as stale as you can get today. Fortunately, there's some commercial operators that are putting some efforts into. Making maintenance human factors better than what it is, but the the version that the FAA has out there is uh, is pretty lame. So yeah, well, we, I'm
0: glad you brought that up, John, because you know uh, a lot of folks in aviation look up to you, and and I've been preaching this for <laughs> forever since I was with the board, and and of course in my afterlife, and that is, I think this is probably one of the best pieces of work, like you said, that the FAA has put out. Because it does cut across all the lines, and not only in aviation, this is apl- applicable in any business environment um, where you're managing people. You, you know, <laughs> people are not cut out of the same cookie cutter. You're going to have to deal with, uh, you know, attitudes and and come up as a manager with strategies to help empower people to do the right thing, to make the right decision, not the wrong thing and the wrong decision. And of course, on the maintenance side of the house, yeah, because everything that happens in the cockpit basically happens on the hangar floor. And when you really dissect all of those things, it's it's a truism. I mean, <laughs> you know, you got fatigue. You got fatigue in the cockpit. You got fatigue on the maintenance floor. You got bad decision-making in the cockpit. You got bad decision-making on the hangar floor. So... This is the kind of thing that we want to emphasize and we continue to emphasize and we implore our audience to download this advisory circular. It is a good read. It's an interesting read because it's an educational read and it will help you when you get into the airplane or when you fix the airplane or when you manage the airplane or even manage your own life with regard to how we as humans interact and react not only to things that we do in our own personal life, but how other people affect us and how it affects our decision making and the attitude we take into the aircraft or, you know, under the aircraft, as the case may be with a mechanic.
3: And another thing about this document, as you mentioned before, there's a lot of good stuff in here. In addition to those five hazardous attitudes, they go into detail about aeronautical decision making. And as you were saying before, this isn't just about aviation and flying. This is about other things. They have a nice little graphic in there that shows you aeronautical decision-making, traditional, conventional rather, that leads to a mishap. Then they have the flowchart for aeronautical decision-making, a much more systematic way of going about things. The other last bonus of this, this is the government document, which means anyone can use this, repost it in their slideshow, put it in their own book. You don't have to pay anybody a dime, so please download Advisory Circuiter 60-22. Give it a quick read. You might learn something.
0: Yeah, and and I, I appreciate the fact that you guys, when we talked about this, you know, a lot of people don't know about this advisory. They don't know a lot about a lot of advisory circulars that are free, and that the FAA has put a lot of effort into. But I found this one to be a, a useful advisory circular almost on a daily basis, and and I try to employ a lot of those principles every single day in the work that I do, the people that I'm dealing with and things like that. So um, we got to carry on the mission, if you will. So uh, I think that this was a perfect accident to introduce this advisory circular. Um, It was tragic that you had um, a student pilot who uh, chose to employ, unfortunately, some of these hazardous attitudes and, uh, put himself and his son in a position of jeopardy. I feel that the the family unfortunately lost two good people. I'm sure that there was good intentions there. It was just bad decision-making on the part of this student pilot, but I think this is lessons learned. This is something that would give you pause as a pilot, that when the weather's really that bad, you're a VFR-only pilot. Um, While you think you can, or you have the competence that you believe you have the skills or an airplane that can do these things, um, you really got to take that deep breath, step back and reevaluate to ensure that, hey, <laughs> nothing is predictable. You may think you can skirt the those clouds and that kind of stuff, but you don't know what's on the other side. So um, this is a great advisory circular to be familiar with and utilize the principles um, in not only your own flying, but in your daily life. So with that, gentlemen, I will leave you with the second to the last word, Todd. Well, this time
3: I have uh, some words for the student pilots out there. This particular accident, the student was 39 years old. That just shows you that you can be a student at any age. He had a layoff of a few years. I had a layoff of a few decades. So whether you're a first-time flyer. God, you're that layoff, old, Todd? Say again, man! You're you're that old. Oh well, God. let's just put it this way: I'm eligible for Social Security, so if that makes me old, and yes, I'm old, <laughs> it's up to me.
2: Only, that, only I've got Wilbur
3: experience. That's right. So again, if you're a student, learn from your instructor. If you're a student, learn from the wisdom of those who came before you. If you're a student in aviation, any aspect of aviation, heck, any aspect of life. Download Advisory Circuiter 60-22 today.
0: And with that, my friend, we will leave you, John, with the last word.
3: I
2: got to tell you, tell everybody that's listening that, that it's been getting tougher and tougher to do these shows. Because the accidents that we look at every single week that are happening, they're just so preventable. They're happening over and over and over again. And we're losing good people. But for bad decision-making, bad uh, operational decisions. So please, if you're going to go flying, do what Todd just said a minute ago. The night before, he looks at what he's going to do flying. The next day, he plans it out again. When you get out to the airplane, do a good free flight. Todd found found an airplane that he was flying that had a lot of work done to a wing. And he dug into that after the after uh, the flight when he had time to dig in to find out what happened. That knowledge is power. So do a good pre-flight. When you get in the airplane, put your head on a swivel. This past weekend, I saw two taxi accidents where not fatals, but two two airplanes hit something. Right? Obviously, they weren't paying attention. Like, right. I mean. When you get in an airplane, you have a lot of responsibility. Pay attention to what you're supposed to be doing and don't be diverted away and don't be rushed. Oh, I want to get in the air. I want to beat these three guys behind me trying to get ready to, to, to uh, taxi. I want to get out in front of them. Don't fall into that trap. Take your time and do it right so that you can come back to your family. Please fly safely.
1: To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888 888- Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.
3: At British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com slash careers and apply now.